What's the Point is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. You've heard of 1-800-Flowers. It's the easiest way to make a big impression for a birthday, an anniversary, and of course for Valentine's Day, which is coming up much sooner than you think. But don't worry, 1-800-Flowers delivers the best selection and highest quality flowers. They do it by mail, they do it quick, and the flowers arrive looking fresh and beautiful. And right now, 1-800-Flowers has a great deal for red Valentine's roses that's only available for a limited time. You can order a bouquet of 18 beautiful red roses for just $29.99. That's $25 off the regular price. Again, only available for a limited time while supplies last Roses don't grow on trees, people. Here's what you need to do. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com from your desktop or on your mobile device. Click on the radio microphone in the upper right corner and enter the promo code POINT. That's our promo code, 1-800-Flowers.com, and enter POINT. Here's something I'll give you. Are you about to out a player? Yeah, no, I'm not going to out a player. But what I'm going to say is that, you know, prosecutors do not go after individual betters, but they often know who they are. And in ring after ring in this country, uh, active players are constantly caught up in these dragnets. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, it's our Super Bowl extravaganza episode, which involves almost nothing whatsoever about the game being played. Instead, we'll talk to one of my favorite reporters, James Glanz of the New York Times, about how high-speed data is changing the NFL and other sports. It's got implications for how we watch the game, but also raises loads of questions about gambling and money and corruption in big-time sports. That's in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Do you happen to have a sec to talk to me? Can I tell you a number? Yes. Good answer. Um, so, so actually, the number is uh, fifty, but the number is also kind of L, which is the Roman numeral for fifty. Now, the Super Bowl is this weekend. Okay. You with me so far? I'm with you. And the Super Bowl usually has Roman numerals when they list the name of the Super Bowl. So I say Super Bowl thirty six, and it's like X V whatever. Okay. But this weekend is Super Bowl fifty. Okay. Do you know what the Roman numeral for 50 is? Isn't it L? Exactly. But they're not calling it L. They're calling it Super Bowl 50. They're going back to a regular number. Because they probably think that people don't know that L stands for 50. You think they know that like XVIV stands for 36 or whatever? Yes. Really? Yes. Are you as outraged about this as I am? No. I'm sorry. Okay, we're back in the studio now with the person who has all the answers to these Roman numeral questions, Kyle Wagner, sports editor here at 538, and making his first What's the Point appearance. Kyle, welcome. Thanks for having me. So so usually these significant digits that I do are a little more serious. They're about economics or politics or something. But I, I want to do this one because I am actually like totally outraged that they went <laughs> to the 50. L would have been so cool. So what's the backstory to this decision? This is – it's so stupid. It is so impossibly stupid. So um, 
the, the real answer is just that it would look stupid, that like it would be host to a thousand jokes, like, oh, you're going to take the L, you're going to do whatever. And 50 looks cool because 50 is a big round number and they want to sell that it's the 50th anniversary of whatever else. And someone looks at an L and they have no idea what it means. But that stems back to the whole stupid thing about the Super Bowl using Roman numerals. Right. There was this infatuation with the seriousness and the augustness of Roman numerals until the moment that it looked dumb. Right. This is... Like, not new. They had Super Bowl XXX, which was a running joke. But, like, this goes back to just, like, the self-importance of the league. Like, th- this is the most self-important league that we have. And so, basically, they can be self-important, and then they can be so self-important that they can change their self-importance when it no longer suits them. They've done this before. The The championship game was originally called the 1968 AFL-NFL World Championship Game. Uh-huh. Then, after that, they retroactively changed the Super Bowl um, because the Chiefs owner at the time, Lamar Hunt, saw his kids playing with a Super Bowl and just phoned someone up and said, hey, wouldn't this sound cool? And they said, yeah, let's do that. And then, like, four years later, so they weren't even using Roman numerals then. They retroactively changed all of the Super Bowls from 1, 2, 3, 4 to I, 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 I. Keep going. How how high do you go? (laughs) So uh, this was Lamar Hunt, too, because of the Chiefs owner back in the 60s and 70s. We are now stuck with this preposterous naming system for the championship game. And so last year it was... Last year it was XLVIIII, or they might have done the IX. Like I'm not sure. I should have looked that and up. And then but. next year they'll go. They'll go to LI. Yeah, it's just right back to it. It just looks just right. as dumb. See, this year I feel like they could have done Super Bowl and then just an extra L at the end of the ball. <laughs> Super Bowl. La, la. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Kyle Wagner, we'll, we'll still be watching the Super Bowl. Who's going to win? I mean, the Panthers are heavy, heavy favorites, but um, it's Peyton Manning's last game. Like, you're rooting for the, you know, the numbers not to play out. And that constitutes the extent of our actual football analysis in uh, <laughs> What's the Point this week, but Kyle Wagner, thanks a lot. And now, investigative journalist James Glanz of the New York Times. He was the lead reporter on the recent series of pieces on daily fantasy sports and data in the NFL, but he's covered a lot more than that in his career at the paper. He was Baghdad bureau chief in 2007. He and his colleagues were awarded a Pulitzer Prize for public service for their reporting after the 9-11 attacks in New York. So I asked him why, in the grand scope of all his reporting, he cares and thinks readers should care about sports data. Here he is. You know, the joy of investigative reporting is that you're not tied to a single beat, right? And um, I have kind of an odd background, I guess you'd say. I have a Ph.D. in physics, uh, and but I grew up with a father who was a sportscaster and a DJ, and so when I can, I, I look for ways to connect different parts of the worlds I know. And in this case, there was just an intriguing possibility of bringing that sort of sports knowledge into a really heavily data-oriented story. And I jumped on it. I actually started off last year breaking a couple of minor stories on Deflategate, the footballs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I was able to do that was that um, some old buddy of my, buddies of mine at um, the Columbia Physics Department uh, let me know that the NFL had contacted them to help them understand something called the ideal gas law, which turned out to be right at the center of the whole controversy. Yes, that story got very technical very quick. And I, this is an aside, but you know, you look back at that moment and you're like, I can't believe we were obsessing over like, PSI and the ideal gas law and all these things. You know, I want to 
talk about the scope of your reporting and how you see this connect to sort of the larger issues you care about. But first, let's dive right into the actual data collection that happens uh, at an NFL game, let's say, and maybe try and trace that and then think about the sort of larger implications. Can you just describe for me? So I'm just a casual fan. I'm watching football on a Sunday. But there's all this data gathering happening in real time. Who's doing it? How are they doing it? Where are they doing it? There are basically three different ways. Um, the most common way, the most of the um, data that you'll actually see on your smartphone or wherever, or running across the um, monitors in front of a broadcaster, come from uh, kids mostly, and they're mostly college kids, sitting in a room somewhere watching television, actually and quantifying what happens, who uh, caught the pass, how many yards, how many yards after the catch, how many tackles broken, and they're doing all this in real time. But they're doing it for the networks to present to the public. Well, there are separate organizations. Uh-huh. The the one that was contracted for forever with uh, the NFL was called Stats, based outside of Chicago. And they do it same How'd as everybody else. Name? There wasn't some <laughs> other organization called Stats? Oh, they go way back. <laughs> I mean, they, they go way they're back, and, and they were closely affiliated and may have been owned by the, uh, by the Associated Press. Uh-huh. Uh, so this this was a this is an organization of long standing. Yes. So they got out ahead okay. uh, of that. So that's and and that sort of stuff is um, a tremendous amount of data. You can imagine the amount of stuff. Sometimes you'll have three kids watching one monitor. They'll be watching different things and, and tapping it into a keyboard. So that's one. And it's like every activity that happens on the on the field. So who threw to who? How many yards? Positions? Everything you could possibly try and quantify out of a single football player. Right, and we take that for granted now, yeah. right? We just sort of expect it's going to be there. Um, some Sometimes, I don't know if you've done this, but I certainly have. Uh, can't get a game on TV, so I watch the graphical version. What comes from those kids? All right. So that's one way. Now, that way is, is good for sort of media and entertainment purposes because it's not very fast. Like, you'll, it, it comes after the delay. You know, television is delayed, right? And then you have people that have to write it in, and then it goes out. Um, the... The way that is more common in Europe and is starting to catch on here involves people tapping in right from the press box. Now, most of the time, because that's very fast, most of the time, and you'll see this in um, European football matches, we call soccer more often, uh, because they have legal betting markets over there, and they have to update um, betting websites very fast. For example, if a goal is scored, it has to be in the system and updating the betting websites before people jump up and scream. Otherwise, somebody in the crowd with a, with a phone will phone in a bet, you know, because they're running bets during these games, right? So you're saying the, the gap, the TV, the seven-second delay or whatever the delay is between when a play happens in the real world and when I see it on TV, in that gap is an opportunity to exploit for gambling. And we'll talk about gambling in the future. But you're saying now there's people who are really like – trying to bridge that gap and take advantage of that moment. Yeah, there are, but um, in the places where these betting markets now are mature, especially right. in Europe where it's legal, um, it's, it's impossible to do or almost impossible to do because the kid up in the, um, in the press box, that's all he does is sit there ready to, ready to hit the button. And there's a third way now, and the NFL just started this. You'll see uh, in games uh, during the regular season and now in the playoffs, um, they'll say next-gen stats. Mm-hmm. Right, and it'll come up, and it'll show something that's sort of funny. It'll show some curly line down the field exactly where a guy um, was running, or it'll show how far the defender in, in yards to a fraction was from the receiver when he caught the ball. 
Well, that information is actually coming from computer chips in the player's shoulder pad. We've and talked so, about this on the show before. Oh, have you? Yeah, so every NFL player is wearing an RFID chip, and it's tracking where they go. And other sports are actually a little ahead of this, right? There's, there's the sport VU in basketball and in baseball. But they can do that whole thing of, like, how long it takes to a, a catcher to try and pick someone off at second base or how long, you know. Well, now there, Jody. Now you're bringing up a fourth, oh, a fourth one. Am I? Yeah, because the the um, NFL version has chips in the shoulder pads, and part of the reason they do it that way in the NFL is that you can't you can't with cameras follow everything that happens. Yes. Let's say there's a big you know tackle, people disappear from view. Right. So in the ones you're talking about in baseball and basketball, most of them are run with cameras. Right, and the cameras are, are tracking where people are in space. In, in three-dimensional right. space. So it, now we've just, we've just talked for just five minutes about the different ways yeah. the data come from a game. You can imagine just the sluice of this stuff that's pouring out through the world at any moment. And that's, it's really a backbone of the sports uh, world now. Back to the guys you described who are collecting the data, you know, the kids, as you said, yeah. sitting in front of the monitors. Do they like sports? Like, do they enjoy watching football? It's a pretty fascinating thing. Um, the most interesting answer I got to that was when I was covering um, the um, European soccer leagues, mm -hmm. right? And so I said, what, what makes a good data entry guy? You know, because it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Well, they have to, they have to use local um, kids because they know the players. And you really have to have more than just the ability to look at a number on somebody's back. You need to really know who everybody is by, like, his haircut and everything because you need to follow those people. But the problem is if you get a fan of that team, right. you know, he, the, the, um, the guy can't operate fast enough. Or, like, he may celebrate when he should be, like, logging and, and into that's, a database. That's exactly the point. So, so that's why it was, it was really driven home to me when I was talking with, with somebody on the phone, and I said, so how quick are we talking about it? And he said, well, he went through all of the delays, you know, and it's mostly, it's mostly human reaction time, which is the biggest delay, and it, it, wow. it, it, it gets through in under a second. But the thing that makes it vivid is that he said it's on the website in Malta or Gibraltar or wherever it's operating before people jump up and scream you know after the goal is scored he enters it and it registers in malta and then people jump up that's wow. how fast he's got to be so you, you have to have these curious sort of people who are cognizant of the team and sort of fans in some certain way but if they're fans of the local team it never works out i'm told because they just can't hold back uh, you know we have a we're at 538 we have a room full of people who i think sort of have this similar experience. I mean, I've talked with Neil Payne, one of our sports writers, about this, how, like, he's so deep in the analytics sometimes that he's watching a game with that part of his brain turned on, and he, like, you know, he has a very weird uh, relationship with, with basketball, which is his beat, and he loves, but, like, that's just a strange kind of fandom when you have to really be breaking it down into its sort of component data points. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we all have that side of our brain, right? Because you're, you're, you're trying to think, is somebody going to have a triple-double? How close is he? And, th and you're watching the game at the same time. But for these data people, that's everything. And I guess fantasy sports brings a lot of people closer to that experience, too, because they're what they, you know, you still have your favorite team and you're watching it, but then your favorite team might be playing an opponent who you have on your fantasy team, and then you get all these sort of conflicting uh conflicting incentives and it's the disaggregated fan so exactly yeah.
So what are the implications as you see them? I mean, is this about a fan experience? Is this really about gambling? I guess I guess my question is, who is pushing the agenda in terms of we need more data at, a, at every given moment? Well, I think that, you know, from the days of um, batting averages on the back of a baseball card, sports fans have always been in love with data. And I think that they'll consume it as fast as you can produce it. And that's just on an entertainment level. Now, um, you know, separately, as I say, there's a, there's a voracious appetite for data in the gambling world. And that's very complicated in the United States because it's highly regulated and mostly illegal here. Uh, now, that's not true in other countries uh, such as Europe. So, um, you know, it, it puts the companies that produce this data in a kind of a difficult position because they want all the business they can get, but they have to respect that boundary. And, um, you know, we've looked at a couple cases where that boundary gets pretty blurred. So I, I think it's a little bit complicated. I don't think I can just sort of pronounce on that in a few words, but um, both worlds need the data. Do you want to talk about the places where it's gotten uh, – those boundaries have gotten blurred here in the U.S.? I mean, uh, you you wrote this whole series on daily fantasy sports. And yeah. The fundamental question there is, is this gambling or is this not? And there's a huge data component to that. But is that what you're what you're hinting at? Well, there are a couple of – I guess I'd make a couple of comments. One is that uh, fantasy sports obviously is another area where there's a bottomless appetite for data. There's no question about it. Um, now, now, separately, there's, there's a question legally, uh, and I guess morally, but mostly legally in the United States, as to whether daily fantasy sports is gambling. And that's being played out right now, yeah. mostly in um, attorneys general's offices in the, in the United States. But um, the other point to keep in mind is that some of these uh, companies maybe don't respect those boundaries, you know, as closely as others. Um, the, the case that we wrote about was when this uh, company, Stats, lost the contract with the NFL. And uh, another company, mainly European company to that point, Sport Radar, uh, you know, got the contract. And um, they have a deep connection with the gambling world. Um, they say they're going to respect that boundary in the United States, but it wasn't really spelled out when they when they got the contract. Um, people didn't really look into their background much here, and we sort of did that and found out a lot about them in the past. So that brings up, I guess, a fundamental question, which is as, more, as there's more and more data and as it's being traded quicker and quicker electronically, you know, what are the, what are the cracks for corruption that emerge as you see it? I, you know, in the United States, I think that the biggest question that comes up is, was this deal with Sport Radar that the NFL made sort of a stalking horse for uh, a future in which gambling is legal? Even though the leagues, of course, especially baseball, but all, all, all the leagues, um, you know, basically um, understand that gambling is illegal in the United States in most places, sports gambling. They take different views on it. I mean, um, the NBA kind of says it's looking forward to the day when it could become legal. Right. We've interviewed Adam Silver at, here at 538, and he's basically made this argument that he doesn't like gambling, but it's a reality, and we have to grapple with it. And the best way to grapple with it is by making it legal and then regulating it. Right. So he's, you know, I think he's at that end of the spectrum when it comes to the sports and then 
would you put the NFL as the kind of most anti-gambling league? Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball. Yeah, with, with the NFL in the middle. Yeah, they're, they got this whole sanctity of the game hang on. There you go. Know? There yeah. you go. That, but, but, but Roger Goodell has spoken about this recently, and he, I believe, has come down on the side of saying that even daily fantasy sports is too close to gambling yeah. for his liking, right? But, you know, as a practical matter, remember, no matter how this breaks out in terms of the spectrum, they've all been working together in cases like the one in New Jersey, where they're trying to keep New Jersey from making sports gambling legal, right? They don't see that as in their interest. So they're, they're fighting sports gambling on the one hand. On the other hand, they made a deal with uh, a company that is best known for providing data to gambling websites. They, 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 you know, again, I want to say the company says it's not using this data for that purpose, but that is its main business. Do you think that it's just a matter of time before sports gambling and sort of high-speed sports gambling is, is legal? No, I, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, when you talk to Europeans, even really smart Europeans, you know, who know this world, um, they think it's inevitable that the same thing will happen here as happened there, you know, which is that it'll be legalized and regulated. And there's a very rational argument for that to happen. But I think if you if you spend some time reporting on this, talking to people in the state houses. You know, um, in the attorney general offices, you know, right down to um, the local deli that has scratch off lotto tickets. All right. Those are all important and very conflicting interests. Casinos, you know, Indian reservations, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, so the, the thing about the United States is that politics is very complicated and, and gambling is one of the most complicated because it's got this long history going back to Al Capone. Everybody thinks they know sort of morally and legally where this stands and everybody kind of has a stake, you know, in the current um, arrangement from um, local detectives, you know, who, who make their names taking these guys down every year um, to, you know, the bookies that exist out there anyway. To make a lot of money. <laughs> who gets to decide who the next Republican nominee for president is. And but, he's, yes. he's part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back to the opportunities for corruption or exploitation in the quick movement of data, reading your work, I inevitably thought of financial markets and the whole sort of flash trading world and how those markets are moving towards exploiting the milliseconds of information. And Michael Lewis has written really you know, convincingly about this, that that just creates areas for exploitation and inequalities. Is that a, is that a safe parallel to you? Um, I, I love Michael Lewis. I love the book. Um, I think the place where it comes up the most or where it's possibly the most problematic is, in fact, daily fantasy sports. Because remember, I was, I was talking about, you know, when data is actually created from the source as a um, feed to gambling websites, it's done in such a way that um, there aren't that many loopholes, you know. I think the problem comes in when you have an unregulated system like daily fantasy sports that does rely on data and the flow of the same data, but you can't really quantify how long it's taking to get there from this spot, from that spot, you know, after the TV delay, before, and is somebody using an algorithm um, in a place um, where somebody else is just sitting there picking and choosing off a computer, you know, and taking notes and so forth, uh, and therefore being at an inherent disadvantage. I think in that case, yeah, you could say that the Flash Boys analogy probably works, and those are the guys who are winning, you know, in fantasy sports, no question about it. And they're and they're they're the ones who have the the best algorithms, and they're often the 
as we've learned the, from you, the ones who are on the inside. Exactly. And they're, and they're sort of just exploiting their insider information. Yeah. But remember another part of this whole thing is that um, we're, we're, we're talking as if everybody's respecting the law, right? But in fact, you know, in one season, $100 billion gets wagered illegally on college and, and in professional sports every right. year, according to the best sources, right? And so people are going around the law right now, and that's just a whole other world where just uh, probably a few wise guys are winning, you know, the Sharps, and everybody else is losing as well. Uh, so you have to also look at reality, which is that we are permeated with gambling, whether we want to admit it or not. How does how does this change our way of like just watching sports as consumers? I mean, should I, when I watch the Super Bowl, be thinking about the billions of dollars that are that are shifting around at, at any given moment, or should I just put that aside because I don't have anything you know at stake? Well, I, I think what, what you saw um, there are a lot of ways to answer that question, but what you saw recently with this um, uh, tennis match fixing yeah. scandal, right? Online betting websites are behind that kind of thing, right? So I think that that it's the integrity of sport. So that and just to to explain that a little bit, uh, it it worked this way to players, and there's pressure on players to because there's so much money being exchanged. There's pressure on players to take advantage of that, or they're, they're you know they're cheating, they're fixing matches, right? And in in the um, in the many uh, match fixing scandals that have rocked uh, soccer, yeah, okay, you know it's as simple as uh, is somebody messing with what they call the over-under, you know? So, so uh, you know, a referee who's in the tank um, sees that it's the number of total goals scored is not going to reach the number that the betting people want, so he starts calling fouls and so forth. Um, and that's the kind of thing that starts to eat away at the integrity of sport. And that's the kind of thing where, yeah, you would worry about that. I, th I think there's um, a real need for integrity monitoring, and it's very tough, you know, going all the way to my, back to uh, the black mark on my team, the, the White Sox. I'm a uh. White Sox fan, you know, 1919 Black Sox scandal. Um, you know, it's just if you don't have regulators involved and if you don't have really intense oversight, there's so much money out there. You're, you're kidding yourself. Something's going to happen. Do you think, though, that there's somewhere between, you know, a player who's ha has their complete integrity intact and then someone who's corrupt and fixing a match? I think about actually in the last couple of years, like y you hear NFL players talk more explicitly about the fact that they know people have them in fantasy sports yeah. and kind of like acknowledge that and their performance is linked to this kind of proxy game or gambling that's happening. Um, you even get sometimes – during March Madness, you know, there's like that a, a shot at the end that has nothing to do with who wins or loses, but but pushes it over the point spread. And then like millions of dollars will exchange because of that one kind of meaningless shot. And sometimes you hear the coaches sort of explicitly say like, oh, yeah, I knew, you know, I knew what the spread was. And I knew that that was like a crazy moment for people who had gambled on this game. Is that, does that worry you that people are just kind of the players are just like aware of all this other stuff that's happening around them? Yeah. It yeah, does. it does. And, and I think that what, in dealing with um, this story and reporting this story, okay, so integrity monitors are some of the people I spoke with. We didn't do a lot about that. Mm -hmm. 
But what I hear from them is that, uh, unfortunately, even when they're working privately with integrity monitors, it's not in any of the sports' interest to really publicize the cases that they actually find. So, for example... Uh, here's something I'll give you um, that we didn't put in, in, in the series. Are you about to out a player? Yeah, no, I'm not going to out a player. But what I'm going <laughs> to say is that, you know, in the United States, um, betting organizations get taken down, prosecuted, right, sometimes severely, especially if they're convicted of money laundering and things like that, which is the usual um, uh, charge. But, um, you know, prosecutors do not go after individual bettors, but they often know who they are. And in ring after ring in this country... Uh, active players are constantly caught up in these dragnets that become criminal prosecutions. But because the players are generally just um, betting, they're never named. Now, the um, law enforcement officials... The players are are betting, but they're never named. Well, so, you know, um, so you take down a ring, Mm -hmm. right? And as part of that, you do your due diligence on the IT and you um, infiltrate their servers and you get uh, the list of all the people who are playing. Now, a lot of them will be hard to track because they'll be, um, have incorrect names or anonymous, but a lot of times you can track them with some kind of identifying information. And what I'm saying is that players are constantly turning up in these uh, rings as betters. Now, sometimes uh, there'll be a case, for example, there was a guy in the front office uh, of New Orleans, um, uh, the New Orleans basketball team, I can't remember if it was called the Pelicans back then or what it was called, but I think it was the Hornets, uh, and he was, he was actually prosecuted because he was running money. You had to move money for these things, right? So he was named. But, but in other cases, um, there'll be multiple players whose names are known to law enforcement and they'll do no more because they don't prosecute betters. I'm just talking about betters, right. right? They'll do no more than notify the leagues, okay? And this is happening all the time. And have you ever heard the league they make an announcement? One of its own players? No, no, they don't, okay? So now I don't know that in any of those cases that involved fixing of any kind. But I mean, you and I should be pretty concerned because the whole, um, you know, the whole point of the league's concern about betting in the United States is they don't want it to become like European football. Right. Right, which has been rocked by scandal after scandal. But why wouldn't – I understand why the league wouldn't want to out one of their own players, but why wouldn't the feds use that as a you know, teachable moment? That's a great question. I mean I, I think that in the history of betting prosecutions in the United States, it is simply understood. And if you, and if you read story after story, you'll see – Betters are never prosecuted. Individual betters are never prosecuted. For one thing, it's often hard to say which law they broke because it's when you move the money that you break the law right. for the most part or when you promote gambling. Those are the big, those are the big ones. So um, that's one reason. And um, most people, by the way, um, are sort of protected because most people lose. And they never <laughs> – they, they, don't, they don't receive the money, Right. So if you want to sort of go after the people who are really exploiting the system, you want to go after the house, basically. That's what, what they do, yeah. and that's the way it works. And, but but um, in most cases, my understanding is, in some cases, this is very explicit understanding, okay, is that those names, those, those betters that come up who happen to be playing for League X, I'm not going to say which league, that gets transmitted to the league. The league hears that, but we don't hear about that as fans, right? Why is that? There's no uh, motivation for the league to make any of that public. 
And in more general terms, now I'm not talking about specifics that I turned up in the reporting, but it, just talking with the, mm-hmm. um, these integrity monitors, um, they say that uh, when cases come up, if there is any way for a league to keep from publicizing it and handling, handle it internally instead, they'll do it. So, you know, the, the whole thing doesn't exactly tend toward a lot of confidence. You were asking me, should, yeah. should you worry about it? Should you think about this money changing hands? And I'm saying, yeah, you should. Just going back to what you just said, though, you did run across some specific names in your reporting. We did. Yeah, we did. I mean, we didn't Was come across. Was there a moment where you at the time is considered including those names? Yeah, but I don't think that, I, I think that um, a lot of times what we did is we would sit down at a table and um, somebody will say, look, um, these guys are retired now. Right. Um, and uh, I'm not going to give you all the names, but here's an example. But we had we had 10. Somebody told me he had, you know, over the last... Um, over the last decade, he had he had ten or eleven names, you know, of active players, but he wouldn't give me any of those names. But I believe that that's correct. Uh, the guy wasn't lying to me. So, um, short of digging any further, I mean, it's sort of um, they were not prosecuted, so it'd be hard for us to write a story about it. The leagues won't tell us, and so you're sort of, you're sort of stuck there. But that question is out there um, because the the system right now doesn't it really doesn't promote public accountability for this kind of thing if it is happening at some level. I want to broaden this out and just kind of get how you feel like this reporting connects with your other reporting. You did before this um, a long series on data centers. Yeah. We tried to kind of explain what happens when terabytes and terabytes of information flies through these huge warehouse centers. Uh, I, don't, I don't really have a, a pithy way to phrase this question, but like how do you think about – data and how it's changing different parts of our lives and how have you kind of processed that as you continue yeah. to evolve as a reporter? Yeah, no, it, it's simple for me, but it's it's probably going to sound foreign to everybody else. But um, remember, I have a physics background, so I think of things physically, you know, and the data center series you talked about was about um, sort of the wanton use of energy. And the way that we did that reporting is we actually just looked at the infrastructure, the stuff that makes up the Internet, which is a whole other layer from what most people are familiar with. And it's big warehouses, you know. It's, it's uh, giant diesel engines and, um, you know, hunks of, um, you know, hot metal and, and things like that, big computers. And same thing here. We tracked it down. So you, you kind of become a little bit of a master of finding out where the data is sitting. And in this case, data centers, again, became very important because um, illegal gambling websites that uh, were registered overseas, in fact, were sitting in data centers in the United States and in New York and Chicago and L.A. and so forth. And we found those places. We went to those places and caused a, a little bit of chaos because some of them fled the premises, basically, digitally speaking. Um, so, yeah, I, to me, the Internet is like a big lawnmower. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not this elegant thing that exists in the cloud or whatever. It's, it's the stuff. It's the tubes and the pipes and the wires. You're coming very close to that famous quote, the Internet is a series of tubes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a lot uglier it's than that. But that, just the, that legal ramification you were just talking about, about how stuff that's registered in one country happens to be sitting on a server, it, it brings up this disconnect between how we think of the internet as this disaggregated thing in the cloud and then 
the physical presence of it in our laws seem to be tied to sort of like physical location. And so that's where the, the tension and the confusion comes up. Did you land somewhere in terms of like how our law should think of what the Internet is or what data is? I guess I guess I'd turn it around. Um, you know, the Internet doesn't rule the world. Right. I mean, uh, we we're in a nation of laws and um, we have to actually change those laws if we want to operate under a different set of operating principles. You know, the Internet calls some of that into question. But in some cases, it sort of just takes advantage of um, people's ignorance about the way the whole system works. And I'm talking about the digital system. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're running essentially in a legal casino in Chelsea, I mean, you're going to have to own up to it. Uh, that's just the way it works, uh, and and there's not. Uh, there's but you're not okay a, with the fact that it's illegal in Chelsea, but it's legal in you know Malta or some Caribbean island. I, well, I can't really help what happens in Malta. <laughs> you know, uh, I would. I, I guess the way I'd put it is that um, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna set up your casino in Chelsea, then um, put a sign out front. All right. Because if what you're doing is relying on law enforcement's ignorance about the Internet, I can tell you it's not going to, you know, the house isn't going to stand forever because they're going to figure that out. You know, and they partly did from from our series. Um, You know, that's an inconvenient fact. Um, Data, like all the rest of us, it exists in a physical place and you have to take that into account. That's just the way it is. There's a front line that is coming out uh, related to right. all of your fantasy sports reporting and NFL gambling, um, and that will be out the week after the Super Bowl, February 9th. Is that right? Set to air February 9th, and uh, watch that. There's a little bit of car chases. and Car chases? Yeah, we went down to the uh, Caribbean. i got to up my game as a data, <laughs> as a data reporter. I didn't realize I could have a car chase. Absolutely. No, we, we went down to um, – the headquarters of one of these sites, Pinnacle Sports, they weren't expecting us to show up, of course. Yeah. We just checked into the hotel where they had their headquarters and went and knocked on the door. Where was this? Uh, this was in Curacao, okay. far southern yeah. Caribbean. And um, uh, the morning after we showed up, um, they started toting computers out of their headquarters and throwing them into trucks. And so we followed them. Wow. <laughs> so and the cameras were there for the that. The cameras were there cool. for that. So check in for that. A uh, little drama. Um and then what's next? I'm not sure. I mean, I, um, I I think that networking, and I'm talking about this in a very technical sense, is something that now weaves through all of our lives and uh, affects almost every professional um, a- area in the United States as, as well as our personal lives, and very few people understand. And I've just sort of started to get close to how complicated it is, but also sort of, um, you know, how, I don't know, weirdly understandable it is. And so I'll probably find another another topic that kind of takes me through that world, you know, and I'll end up again in these sort of places where you're, you're looking around and you think you're in the belly of a submarine, but it's really the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of like those places. Yeah, I like those places too. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, I hope maybe you come back and talk about that whenever you do that, but I'll be reading either way. But uh, Jim Glantz, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jody. Appreciate it. Jim Glantz of the New York Times. Links to all his articles are on our website now. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our intern is Jonathan Yales. Tony Chow edits videos for 538, and you can see a video with more of me and Jim Glanz on the 538 Facebook page right now. 
Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Many of the upcoming shows are coming from ideas that you've sent our way, so thank you very much. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Don't forget about 538's new elections podcast. Over in that feed, we just published 538's first ever documentary podcast about the Howard Dean screen. We're really proud of it, so go check it out. Thanks for listening. See you soon. 